Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy March, dear listeners. We hope you're well. We are back in the Bay Area this week after a quick trip to Ketchum, Idaho last week with the interns, which was a sheer delight. It's really easy to understand why the area was overrun by new residents during the pandemic. This, at least according to the locals, and also some hangers-on who came and haven't left. Between the mountain ranges and the bright starry skies, we kind of want to move there now too. In any case, we are just getting back into the swing of things where Twitter continues to be a big story, at least for reporters like myself who have long relied on it heavily. For one thing, it just reported a decline of about 40% year over year in both revenue and adjusted earnings for the month of December. For another, Twitter is still not paying many of its bills, including apparently money it owes to Amazon Web Services, which is a problem because Amazon is also an advertiser on the platform and a powerful super conglomerate that any other company on the planet might hesitate to piss off. In a pretty funny bit on The Daily Show earlier this week, guest host Hassan Minaj actually called out Twitter users and not Elon Musk for ruining the social media service before he deleted his own account live on the air. I recommend watching that. It's pretty funny. Either way, it's hard for us to imagine a world without Twitter at this point. So we ask you, what do you think? Will this company be circling the drain in another two years or will it be even more powerful? Take our poll in Friday's issue of Strictly VC and let us know. But not right now. Right now, sit tight or keep driving or walking or eating that breakfast bagel because we have an interview with Aiden Senkut coming up that we hope you'll enjoy. Senkut is the founder of Felicis, an early stage venture firm that has written early checks into Shopify and the Dutch payment company Adyen and the still private for now at least fintech company Plaid among many other companies. I had met Senkut a million years ago when he had just left Google and was trying to get into angel investing, including by shadowing angel investor Ron Conway. And it's kind of remarkable to me what he has built since. In any case, because he knows so much about fintech, we talked yesterday morning about Stripe, a company that is not in Felicis's portfolio and that recently cut its valuation down to $50 billion, a huge discount to the $95 billion that it was assigned by its investors in 2021. We also talked about the late stage market, which is kind of a disaster right now and generative AI. Generative AI is, of course, anything that anyone wants to talk about lately, but also Felicis made a big and notable bet on a related company called Runway ML back in December, and we wanted to understand more about that deal. We'll get to that interview in just a few minutes, but first, the news. The title of the New York Times' Hard Fork podcast paints a grim picture of the crypto industry. Everyone pivots to AI and bad news for crypto. The subhead is even worse. Is crypto dead or only mostly dead? It's not all bad news for hodlers. While the price of Bitcoin has fallen 43% over the past year, it has risen almost 35% since January 1st. Still, it was shocking to read last night that FDX believes it might be missing almost $9 billion in customer assets. Now comes word that Tether might have skeletons in its closet as well. Tether is an important linchpin in the crypto economy, 
Its eponymous stablecoin is the most widely traded cryptocurrency and provides an important means of liquidity for holders of digital assets. Moreover, its sister company runs Bitfinex, one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. According to a Wall Street Journal review of emails and documents involving the companies, however, both Tether and Bitfinex went to great lengths to mask their identities in order to stay connected to traditional banks and financial institutions. In addition to opening banking accounts under different pseudonyms, the companies urged customers to keep the details of these arrangements to themselves. Divulging this information could damage not just yourself and Bitfinex, but the entire digital token ecosystem, a client page on the Bitfinex website read. Certainly, the journalist's analysis of Tether's documents will only spur on legislators who are looking for any excuse to treat cryptocurrencies as securities. And that would be bad news for the crypto world indeed. The Wall Street Journal reports that Tesla stock is more popular than ever among individual investors, leading the stock to rise by over 60% so far this year. And demand for EVs shows little signs of slacking off. According to J.D. Power, last year EVs accounted for 5.8 of all new cars sold, an 81% increase over 2021. And the rollout of mainstream vehicles, such as the Ford 150 Lightning, should only cause EV penetration to increase. Given the popularity of electric vehicles, it is perhaps time to take their security more seriously. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal posted an interview with correspondent Bart Ziegler, who wrote an article two weeks ago about whether electric vehicles can be hacked. The short answer is, they can. While internal combustion engine, aka ICE, vehicles may have 150 electronic control units, Syed Ali, a partner and cybersecurity expert at consulting firm Bain & Company, told Ziegler that an average EV could have as many as 3,000 chips. Put another way, that's 20 times more opportunities to infect an EV with malware than an ICE vehicle. Hackers could also spread malicious software through public charging stations or home chargers. The latter are particularly vulnerable, as many home chargers are linked to the owner's Wi-Fi network and a smartphone app, or to a cellular network, offering more potential attack vectors, Ziegler writes. Experts think that it might take a major cyber attack on the EV infrastructure before the industry and lawmakers take serious steps to help secure electric vehicles. Stuart Madnick, a professor and cybersecurity expert at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Sloan School of Management, is one of them. Sometimes we need a wake-up call, he told the journal. Up next, Connie's interview with Aidan Senkut of Felicis. But first, a word from our sponsor. We are sponsored by Hunt Club. Imagine if hundreds of CFOs could tap their networks to search for your next financial leader. Or... What if the nation's top sales executives offered warm introductions to your next VP of sales? This is made possible with Hunt Club. Powered by community and technology, Hunt Club is a new category of recruiting. They specialize in working with venture capital firms and their portfolio companies to hire the world's best executive and professional talents. Ready to find your future leader? Head to huntclub.com. That's H-U-N-T-C-L-U-B dot com.
I'm, I'm so glad to be talking to you. It's sort of a rare treat that I would get to talk to you twice in a, one week, but we talked briefly earlier this week about your new fund. Congratulations, $825 million, which you said you raised in three months, which is pretty mind-blowing in this environment. Can you tell me a little bit about your conversations with your LPs, I mean, obviously they were happy enough to recommit to the firm. I'm just wondering maybe if they had different questions or concerns this time around. Yeah. I mean, look, I think one has to be really realistic. We put ourselves in their shoes. I think one of the people that I need to recognize is our partner, Katie. She came from the LP world. She spent two decades in this role. She knows them really well. And I think she totally understands the psyche and what they're going through I feel like sometimes this aspect of our business is very opaque and nobody talks about it. But one of the things that it took us like 10, 12 years is we've done so many cool things in terms of how we report on our companies, instrumentation and transparency we provide to them. The things that we're expecting from our founders, actually, like people don't realize, but look, I mean, we have investors as well. Like they're asking us tough questions. And I think when they see the amount of work that we've done, and how we looked at the portfolio and completely decoupled it from public valuations and said, listen, here's the intrinsic value of the companies. This is what their traction. This is what their growth rate. You take everything, cut down the multiples by half, cut down the growth by half. Here's what it looks like. We've done so much work to even go beyond the bleakest scenario and say, okay, this is basically in a realistic scenario where things can end up. So that gives them confidence that, hey, listen, we're not resting on our laurels. We're taking a much harsher approach in terms of looking at the portfolio. I think the second thing that we gave them comfort on is that you can simplistically just look at valuations and say, okay, that's basically what it's all about. But there was a great article by, I think, Alex Clayton from Meritech. And he's like, listen, there are 17 public companies in tech right now and public stocks that have more than a 10x multiple. And what was really interesting is when I looked at those 17 companies, I would say maybe at least 10 of them we have great investments and bets we made in those sectors or analogous or going after the incumbents or could coexist. So what we basically told our LPs is also really important, the sectors that you're active in. If you're in the wrong sectors, let alone like entry valuation, you might not even get any follow-on funding at all and no exits because right now it's crickets in some sectors and it's still very hot. In some other sectors, like infra dev tools and security is still very hot. There are some other areas are brutal, like consumer is brutal. Marketing and advertising is brutal. And so being in the right sectors really matters as well. You did really well by investing early in Adyen. In Europe, which you know is wonderful, but of course, fintech is also one of those sectors that has been hard hit. I'm wondering how you're thinking about bets there. There's only so many, obviously, neobanks that the world can support. Where are the opportunities or are you kind of staying away from fintech for now? No, no. Actually, fintech is an important sector for us. I would like to highlight two aspects that are, I think, really important, especially in light of what Stripe are going through, Mm -hmm. because everybody's asking me about it. What is that? First of all, many people didn't even know about Adyen. But when Adyan went public and the two companies were set side to side, I think the most striking data that I heard, and I don't know if it's current, maybe it changed, but a very simple point was made, which is Adyan has the same amount of revenue with one third the engineers of Stripe. Now, really? look at how like, stunning that is in today's environment. 
all these other companies are going and laying off engineers because their efficiency is not high enough. Mm-hmm. And Adyen has always been conservative. And they're like, listen, we're going to now do the opposite. Because we are so efficient, we can actually continue our growth, right? It's a completely different way of building the company. You can generate growth by hiring a lot of people, but the efficiency goes down. So to be able to continue growth with the same level of efficiency higher is very, very difficult thing to do. And I think that's the secret behind Adyen's success. One of the things that our LPs also really appreciate about us is we look forward and we explain why we think success is going to come. So in fintech, we have stayed away from neobanks. We have stayed on anything that's financial engineering or interest rate risk. And instead, we focused on things that are hardcore technology platforms. So Credit Karma was a recent exit. They have something like 70 or 80% of the US population on the platform. When you look at Plaid, it's like the most important API company in fintech. And then some of the newest investments we made, my partner Victoria was in one of your panels. If you look at Alloy or Centilink, this is like identity platform or KYC or synthetic fraud. It's Mm -hmm. not financial engineering, but it's real technology that's making a difference. And more importantly, they are doing that in an area that is relevant to every fintech or financial services company, right? Like you can't be a bank and not care about fraud. You can't be a bank and not care about identity. These are at the essence of the operations of these. So I think every time we've been successful, the way that we have kind of predicted it or engineered that luck is always choose platform companies, always choose pick and shovel companies, always choose something that is critical and never going to go away, right? We also have a guideline in financial services. It's 401k. Retirement is not going to go away, right? Payroll is not going to go away. So we have a stake in gusto. So whenever we made these kind of bets, it sounds like, oh, maybe it's an old boring business, but nobody can argue. Like every business needs to run payroll. Every business at some point needs to think about 401k or at least the business owner. So by doing that, it kind of steered us to bread and butter, good platform, good potential companies. And we've stayed away from more speculative bets that might be more risky. And who knows if this is going to result in an exit or not. You know, just going back to Adyen. So its market cap right now is $40 billion. I don't know where Stripes is. I'd seen maybe in the information or somewhere else that it just marked its valuation down again. Do you think that it should be worth more than Adyen or not necessarily considering that? I'm not not going to speculate on Stripe. I also Mm -hmm. think that it's two different approaches. Adyen approaches, we're going to work with the world's top 1,000, 5,000 players. And Stripe is, we're going to be the long tail business. I don't know Stripe's business because I know Adyen and I know it's a public company. So I'll be careful with my comments, but I do think that focusing on the biggest companies that are more resilient is more attractive. And I think one of the things that helped Stripe a couple of years ago, but now might be working against it, is that the long tail businesses, when economy is tough and when interest rates are high and when there is layoffs and inflation is really high, small businesses and long tail businesses take an inordinate amount of hit. Maybe Google did some layoffs, whatever, but when you look at it, Google is not going out of business anytime soon, right? The top 1,000 companies in the world are not as impacted as the small businesses. So whenever you have a change in economy, a change in the tailwinds, I would say that Adyen looks to me like a better risk versus Stripe. Stripe is saying, oh, like, but every company starts with us, whatever. But if there's a higher failure rate in those startups, it means that it's going to put a lot of pressure on them. And I think, again, I don't know their business, but I would just say some of these fundamentals are important when looking at the two companies. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wonder about a lot of companies that were catering to startups like Brex, for example. I don't know if they've publicly announced a markdown in their valuation, but I have to imagine that they're being impacted for the same reasons. I don't know if you have any information there or have any thoughts about that. I mean, if I can give you an umbrella comments, one of the things, so I had a small personal piece on telemetry. I'm obsessed with Formula One because of its telemetry is that we go to our companies and listen, if you only measure things in one dimension, it could be gamed or you could get false confidence. If you're only looking at revenue growth, well, you can buy revenue growth by spending a lot of money, but that means that you're killing the company slowly, right? So what we basically tell them is, listen, if you want to be truly intellectually honest, what you should measure is efficiency and two things moving in different directions, not just revenue growth, but revenue per employee, revenue per dollar raised, revenue per dollar spent. When you look at those things, they move in opposite directions. So to improve that is a lot harder. So one of the things that I think we do differently than other venture firms, instead of entry valuations, what we really focus on is the fundamentals of the company. We look at this revenue efficiency. And again, going back to Adyen and Stripe, Adyen had the most phenomenal revenue efficiency of any company I've seen, maybe even better than Google or maybe as good as Google. And so what ends up happening is people are like, Google is successful, Adyen is successful, but they don't look at the underlying metric. And then when you realize that that efficiency is a very high confidence metric that predicts future success, then you can go to all the other companies like, listen, do you want to be successful in the future? Great. We agree on that. Here's the stat. You're not going to like this stat, mm -hmm. but this is the right stat. If you get this right, then the confidence you're going to be successful in the future is almost hundred percent. Yeah. Right. So that's something that we do differently with our companies. And also it makes it black and white, right? Like we're not like passive aggressive. Six months ago, we're like, spend all the money you have to grow. And then six months later is like, fire half of your workforce, you need to save money. That is not a way to run the company. So when you basically give them a framework, then they can run the company within that framework. And if they don't, then you're like, listen, I gave you the framework. It's your company. If you don't want to use the framework, it's up to you. But the framework tells you the truth. Just out of curiosity, do you still have shares in that company, Adyen, which went public? I do. I still do. Yes. Okay, great. I still and do. What is the firm's philosophy approach to holding on to shares after a company's gone public? Because you have a number of companies, obviously, in your portfolio that have gone public over the last five, eight years. 100%. So we do do distributions. I think one of the things that we try to stay honest, and I think an important fact of the fund announcement you covered, unlike many other venture funds, we have one fund. And I think we tried this focus fund in the last fund, but we realized that our core competency is to find the world's best companies across sector stages. So I think what we do is we have good guardrails. I think we've been very conservative in our distributions, which is another reason why our LP is appreciated and people like Joanna from University of Chicago that commented. So what ends up happening is we do distribute, but then it's up to the people. Like I got a distribution of Adyen as a result of our successful performance and carry, mm -hmm. but I did not sell my shares, right? Like mm -hmm. I kept the shares. I don't think our job is to make that decision for all our LPs, right? Like Sequoia took a different approach and we're like, listen, we're going to make this an evergreen. We're going to take all the exits and we're going to keep it within Sequoia. So I think we have a different approach. We're like, listen, are we public managers? No, our strength right. is venture. Mm -hmm. So when the right time comes, even if somebody can argue that, listen, there is more potential Look, at some point after the company goes public, because public investing is not our forte, I'm not really sure we're in the best position to evaluate whether it's worth holding or not. So what we'll do is we'll just distribute the shares. 
Right. So if you need the liquidity, you can sell the shares tomorrow. If you're as bullish as we are, you can keep holding the shares. But that way, we're not imposing the decision on our LPs. We're creating liquidity. But if they can tolerate illiquidity, they can stretch those returns, obviously, and maybe like juice our performance a little bit more by doing that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, my sense from talking to LPs is that they really don't love that Sequoia has moved in that direction. Of course, whatever the firm wants to do, they'll agree to. But my sense is that they would prefer the approach that you take and that traditional VCs have taken. It's interesting, though, you mentioned the Opportunity Fund. So you had raised back in 2021, a $300 million opportunity type fund, and you're not planning to do that again. I was wondering if there was another one that was around the corner. I will never say never. I Mm. think one of the things is it's important for me to be humble on behalf of my team. Look, we run experiments. I think one of the things that's really important to me, in order to succeed, you need to dare and you need to have experiments. What we learned through that experiment is I would say the focus fund was a great idea. And one of the reasons why we ended up doing a larger core fund, and it remains to be seen, is that I think for an opportunity fund to work, it needs to be at a certain scale and it needs to make a certain number of bets. And then the other thing is, there was maybe a time period, like let's say in the mid-2010s, when we invested in Adyans and Shopify's would have been the perfect time for opportunity fund. It would have been perfect to put more money into Adyan and Shopify Mm -hmm. and Canva. The reality is those times have passed. And what we realize is, first of all, the timing for existing companies is not good. Most of them have already reached scale and there is not really a great opportunity at the growth end to put more Mm -hmm. money into those companies. And then the second thing is you're competing with three, $5 billion growth funds and you're undersized. And as a result, you have a smaller portfolio. It just doesn't work. You don't want to be in the game if fundamentally you're disadvantaged. I think partially we are like, listen, is there a way to split the capital into more buckets? And we realize for now that we think that the right way to go about it is a single fund. In the future, if we have a different thesis or or the timing changes, the market changes, I'm not going to say never, but I think for now, we have decided that we are probably best to keep to our knitting and stick to a one-fund approach, meaning that unlike other VC firms, we do biotech, we do different stages, we do different geos, all from a single fund. And that has been our secret to success and that has been our core strategy. So in some ways, you can say we're going back to basics. I'm wondering what you think in terms of the later stage market. I know that you invest at the earlier stage, but of course you have maturing companies. I had listened to an interview that Chamath Palahapatiya gave earlier this month, and I wrote about it this week because I thought it was interesting. He said that he thought it would take three years for late stage valuations to reset, that a lot of managers are still stubbornly refusing to adjust valuations because they don't want to take the hits. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's a long timeline or does that sound accurate to you? I mean, I'm going to tell you something that's really funny. One of the things we didn't talk about is you didn't ask me, what is the time period for this new fund that we're thinking about implementing? And we went to our LPs and said, listen, we might have been in mostly the two-year range of implementation. This time we wanted to stretch it to three years at Mm -hmm. least. What I told them is, listen, I don't have a crystal ball. I wasn't thinking about late stage evaluations. I was most thinking about exits. I do think that the resettling of markets and readjustment of multiples is going to take longer. And I'm almost positive, like almost 100% is going to take longer than two years. I don't know if it's exactly three years, a little less, a little more. But the way that I positioned it and we positioned it with our LPs is, listen, if you give us three years, the possibility that some of the exciting companies we have, whether it's an M&A exit or going public, the probability is much better. 
not 100% and probably not 0%. I would say probably over 50%. What I mean, like much better probability distribution. And then like it became clear that before our next fundraise, if we want to have more exits, the most important thing is you need to give it enough time. Mm-hmm. And it's not two years. It's definitely not one year. I would say I agree on that time period with Chamath that I think for the exit scene to normalize, it's probably going to take roughly that time. And I wish I could say it's earlier than that. And if it is, we'll be pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. But I'm not in the business of guessing. I'm not in the business of taking chances as much as we need to dare, but managing probabilities and if you ask me, one of the things I told my team, look, it's a great celebration today. We raised our new fund. Don't spend it all at once. We have three years <laughs> to deploy this fund. I basically told them, let's hunker down. Let's make this last longer. Let's give ourselves enough time so that we're not in a rush and our companies have time to grow into the right valuations, right multiples, and the market has time to resettle a little bit. Yeah. So when I was working on the story about your funding this morning, I hadn't seen, but Blackbird, which is also a very early investor in Canva, had marked down a company that you had talked to me about earlier this week. I know you were one of the earliest investors and you said you invested at a hundred X multiple at the time. People thought you were crazy and it grew a thousand X from there. But Blackbird did mark its valuation down, I guess, for its own LPs from $40 billion dollars. Canva was valued by investors in 2021, I think, to 25.6 billion this past summer. I had missed that. Did you also mark down this investment or was that something that Black- we did? We did mark it. So one of the important thing is, look, valuation policy is something we don't play games. I mean, that's all under our CFO. We have very strict guidelines. We have multiple metrics. We are audited by a big four auditor. There's a framework. For instance, like if sales reach a certain level, we need market comps. If It's been more than a year since the last public round. We have to run market comps. We cannot make any changes to it. The framework is the framework. We have also adjusted it. I think the point that I wanted to make is when we paid 100x multiple, when we first got into Canva, Canva had a million revenues and we got in at 100 million. So what is happening is everybody's looking into it and saying, oh my God, it's like 40 billion, 25 billion. Even if it's 10 billion, it's an amazing investment. It's not 100x since we invested yeah. So obviously I would want it to be 40 billion, but the thing that is sometimes really frustrating to founders and companies, they have this amazing performance and that is not changing. That's the intrinsic value of the company. But unfortunately, whether we like it or not, the market puts a multiple on it. And currently the market is putting a different multiple on it mm-hmm. than they did 18 months ago. So there is no way of denying that reality just because you don't like gravity doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we do the same thing. We just mark our book to whatever the comp models are. So yes, we did take a valuation change and that is absolutely the right thing to do. And that is one of the reasons why I told you that one of the things that we're also doing is skewing earlier stage so that even if we want to be aggressive, you have more potential for valuations to grow. You're like investing in earlier stages versus at later stages. I think you're a lot more at the mercy of the market So you really have to take into consideration what the public market multiples are, and you can't sway too far away from that. And also earlier this week, we talked a little bit about generative AI. I know listeners are trying to figure out what's hype and and what's real. So Canva has this beautiful design software. I know it has products built on one of the large language models, Stable Diffusion, as well as OpenAI's GPT-3. I saw that co-founder Cameron Adams told VentureBeat in December that it's working closely with OpenAI in particular because he said 
that one of the things that OpenAI is great at is machine learning, but they're not so great at productizing stuff. And that's what Canva is really great at. I guess the question I'm wondering for Canva and so many others is, what if OpenAI gets great at productizing stuff? Is that something that you worry about? I mean, I think one of the things that we need to be careful is, look, OpenAI is having an incredible moment and it is one of the coolest things to see. It's kind of like emergence of iPhone and App Store. AI is like in a new era, but we've been investing in AI for 20 years. I think there is this, I don't know, like, how should I say, because it's unknown and it's happening so fast mm-hmm. and it's happening in ways that people haven't predicted it. Not everybody is like, oh my God, it's all about OpenAI. Like, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a zero-sum game, Connie. Like, look, in my opinion, if you were to give it three, five years, mm. there's a chance that Canva is going to use OpenAI. They might use some models by Google. Maybe they'll incorporate models by other companies. Just because you have some of these fundamental models doesn't mean that necessarily all the value is going to accrue to you. I also think that, look, I mean, we're talking about data being the new oil. A hundred years ago, a lot of wealth got created by people that process oil. And it wasn't just Rockefeller. I mean, every oil company that came after that was very successful and it wasn't a single company. A good example of that is I was just looking at the most valuable YC companies. And one of the areas we've been very active early, but then missed some of the later bets is HR. You have Deal. There was another HR company, Papaya. Monday.com has gone public. And you can say that's a sleepy area of HR, like payroll and software that people use. And because every company needs it, so many great companies came about. And it wasn't just a single company where the value got accrued. So I don't know. I think I'm more optimistic. I do think that generative AI is here to stay. I think it's going to have a big impact. I don't even think we can visualize yet where it's going to have impact. But I don't think OpenAI is the end of that chapter. I think you're going to see a lot more companies taking it new places. And I think value can accrue in a lot of really interesting ways. So for instance, when I talk to you about Runway, look, 20 years ago, when I first came to Silicon Valley, everybody was editing videos on Silicon Graphics machine, and you couldn't even do it on PC. Then in three years, you could do all of these things in PCs and Silicon Graphics cease to exist, just like that. Mm-hmm. When I think about it now, I look at my kids. I know you have kids as well. I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old, and they're all on YouTube Shorts. It's so different now. And I feel like in this new age of all the video being on a mobile and everything being so wide dispersed, like I'm talking to Runway, they're like, listen, all the Fortune 500 companies are coming to us because 10 years ago, they ran like two campaigns a year, one for Super Bowl, maybe one for a TV ad. Now they're running 10 campaigns a day, right? It's all on social media. It's on TikTok. It's on YouTube shorts. It's a completely new era. And that's why I'm excited about Runway because I don't think people realize how much video and video editing has changed. So if you can be the platform for the billions of videos created everywhere in the world, that's valuable. And I don't think that's going to be OpenAI and I don't think that's going to be Google. You know what I mean? So I don't think like they're going to like dominate every single use of AI. So that's why I'm bullish. OpenAI is going to remain a great company. And I mean, look, the same thing was said about Google, right? Like Google has this amazing technology, but one can argue that Amazon and Apple have done a better job of productizing. And even after 25 years, each one of these companies have a strength and they also have an Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if a single company is going to manage to master all domains. So that's where I'll leave it. Right, right. And just for listeners who don't know, a Runway is a generative AI company that makes 
video editing software where a user can basically type a short text phrase into its software and then it conjures a picture of whatever they've described, sort of, right? Is that Not only that, but you can do video effects. So I think they basically created their own generative AI models, including stable diffusion, which a lot of companies build on. But what is beautiful is 20 years ago, if you try to use Adobe, you have to use menus, you almost have to get trained like a college degree. With Runway, you don't need any training. You can speak any language. You just go into a box and type what you want the program to do, and it does it for you. And what's beautiful is in Adobe, if you want to apply an effect, there is actually a software program that does it. So unless somebody has written the program to do something, you can't add effects. What is really beautiful about this new era with Runway and video editing is you can literally tell Runway, take your beautiful black and white photo and make this orange scale and it just does it. There was no program that was written to specifically do that. It's because of the nature of AI. It just figures out how to do it and does it on the fly. You just need to type what you want to do into it and it just does it for you. I just think it's a new era and it's just so exciting. It's so mind-blowing. I guess just from a financial standpoint, you led around in this company in December. Forbes said it was done at a $500 million valuation, even though the company says it's making single-digit millions of dollars right now. How did you decide how much to put into this company? And I guess, how was that valuation established? Yeah. I mean, look, valuation is partially supply and demand. I think there was at least five term sheets. I think there might've been term sheets that had higher valuations than us. There were a lot of conservative, very well-known tier one firms that also wanted to invest in that round. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is like, again, when you look at it, it sounds like this is a crazy deal. And why would you do something like this? On the other hand, it's been like three months since we invested in the company. And they went from maybe 100 or 200,000 registered users to 1.2 million registered users. And everything is increasing monthly at rates that would blow you away on an annual basis. And they're doing it every month, every week. I'm looking at the growth figures and I've never seen anything like that. So I think this brings us to another point, which is a lot of times when we invest in companies, people are only looking at a certain moment in time and saying, well, that's a good decision or that's a bad decision. What they're not realizing is, listen, the most important thing in our business, as Warren Buffett said, is compounding. Mm -hmm. If a company is compounding at astounding rates, even if you paid a really crazy multiple, if that company goes from no revenue to 5 million of revenues and then 20, 25 million of revenue and keep growing like that, Mm -hmm. there is no company in public market. Everybody's growing at 40%, 30%. Right, This company is growing at 10x year over year. That's a thousand percent. So you cannot tell me that I'm going to apply the same multiple to a company that's growing thousand percent. And in fact, they had a report in January. If you annualize their numbers, it was more like 10,000 percent. And I'm like, okay, that's probably not going to continue. But you know what I mean? So you cannot just look at it and say, you're basically taking multiples that companies that are growing at 25 percent and then apply it to a company that's growing thousand to 10,000 percent just doesn't make sense. The only thing you need to do at that point is how much faith do you have that that growth rate is going to continue, right? So it's a different calculation. If you find something else where you're getting a good bargain, it might be not relevant at all. It might not get to a scale of going public, or it might not get to a scale where it's going to acquire it by another company. I mean, I just think this company is one of a 10,000 and maybe one in a million. So I, I do think that they're special. And that's one of the reasons why we did that. But just to kind of make sure that if any of our LPs are listening, one of the things that we did internally, just so that we're not cowboys and we're not chancing things or risking our franchise, 
we basically came up with a framework and we said, we can put up to 10% of our LP dollars in higher risk, higher valuation deals, right? So I think the most important thing that I need to qualify, we are very valuation agnostic and we will do things that are bleeding edge, but we have come up with a ratio for ourselves. So it's not like 90% of the fund are invested into deals that have amazing multiple, right? We gave ourselves a budget. It's like 10% of the fund. That's great because if we don't take risk, we're not going to succeed. In venture business, like multiple people tell you, 90% of returns go to 5 to 10% of the venture firms. And you're not going to get there if you're not taking the right risk and you're not in the right companies. I, I don't want to keep you all day. I mean, I do, but I know you've got other things to do. I wanted to ask you quickly, I have always thought of your firm as being very international. You were investing all over the place from the outset, which always kind of amazed me because, of course, the firm was much smaller 15, 17 years ago. You never did enter into China or India, I don't think. And obviously, China is kind of out of the question right now, owing to its deteriorating relationship with the US. But have you ever thought more about investing in India or Southeast Asia? So I think the easiest answer to that, it's something that I'm really proud of. I mean, even if you look at our investment activity, we have invested in multiple companies in Israel, like a couple companies in France lately, one in Germany, one in Ireland. We don't have offices in these countries. So I think we have a simple thesis, which is, look, almost every member at Felices comes from multilingual, multinational families. We're mostly immigrants and self-made. Everybody speaks multiple languages. So I think we are made to execute on this international strategy. The only reason we have not moved in in China or India or at the moment, Southeast Asian market, we are in Australia. Mm, okay. It's for two reasons. Number one, I think international investing is often misunderstood. When we invest in Canva, it's not that we want to invest in an Australian company. It's that we wanted to invest in the global leader of design. It just happened to be in Australia, right? Like when we make other bets, like recently we invested in a company called Tynes. It's in low-code, no-code security. It's the best company of its kind that we found in the world and it happens to be in Ireland, right? So when we invested in Rovio, it was because it was the number one mobile game. When we invested in Adyen, it was because it was the number one payments company. It just so happened that it was in Amsterdam. We wanted to invest in a leading commerce platform. It was in Ottawa. Now, let me open up parentheses. When it comes to China and India, the great thing about those countries is they have a 1.2 billion population and they almost have their own ecosystem. So it's kind of like a universe within a universe. In order to invest in those two countries... I don't think you can do it from just an office in Silicon Valley. You need to have deep roots in those geographies. You need to know everyone. You need to have a local office. So what we basically said is the same comment I made about investing from a single fund. You have to be intellectually honest of what you're good at mm -hmm. and where your competency runs out. When it comes to China and India, I'm not saying like never, but there are certain aspects of investing in those countries. We just didn't feel like we had a competitive advantage. And if that's the case... We can't boil the ocean, right? We cannot just step into every geography. So we basically said, listen, if we don't have a competitive advantage, let's stay out of those geos. I think the same is true mostly of the Southeast Asian countries, because a lot of times there are great companies, but they're local leaders. Mm -hmm. So we do not want to build our franchise on local leaders. We are only interested in global leaders. And that's the reason why 
it's not that we chose Australia over another country. It's just that they happen to have a company that we think is the global leader in a sector. And that's what we're interested in. Now, interestingly enough, we talked about Superbase, even though maybe the legal documents say it's East Bay, the founders are actually in Singapore. So is, is that a Singaporean company or a global company? I think they have people in 15 countries. But if you want to know where the CEO lives, I think he lives in Singapore. And in fact, he travels around the world. So that's a good example of like, you might not think of Superbase as a Singapore company and maybe it's Delaware LLC, whatever. Mm-hmm. But these things have become blurred, yeah. right? We were interested in that company as a database platform and we didn't really care where it is. And we just wanted to invest in that company. So because of that strategy and because of the intellectual honesty, while we would love to invest in every country, that's just not going to be the case. So we need to filter based on, hey, listen, do we have a competitive advantage? Can we manage the legal system or the process from where we are? If the answer is yes, we will do it. And then if we can make an impact and continue to help scaling from where we are, we will do it. But if our competitive advantage runs out, as in the case of India and China, and it might change in the future, we are more than happy to say, you know what, that's probably where our zone runs out. There are more than enough good firms in both countries, and we have more than enough companies in our pipeline and track record. So we don't need to be in every single company in the world. And you were born in Istanbul, something that I sometimes forget. Obviously, I was. out of Turkey and Syria has been so devastating. For one thing, I don't know if you happen to have any suggestions for listeners, how they can best help. I'm sure they'd welcome these. If so, yeah. I mean, absent knowing more myself, I donated to UNICEF, but obviously yeah. the need for more is ongoing. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. I think it's also particularly difficult because being so far away from it, there is also like a very tough, turbulent situation right now. Roads are closed, but I honestly think Amazon did a really great job. I think they have gone through everything and they found too, and I should probably tweet about it. I personally also backed and I was actually going to reach out to them and say, listen, can I do something bigger where I may invite matching grants? I wanted to be a role model and take the initiative. But I think if you just go type Amazon and Turkey earthquake, I think Amazon, from what I have been able to see, has the best approach. And I think they managed to find the right charities or the right groups that are helping in those geos. That's great. I didn't know that. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was clueless. Have you done any investing there? I mean, it's kind of exciting. Sequoia has got what? Gatir there. Yeah. I I mean, look, it's I'm really happy for the country. Turkey has a great potential. We have some really smart computer science students. There is great potential. They've been very successful in the overall e-commerce consumer market. Mm -hmm. Before Get Here, you also had local leaders of eBay. And Turkey now has reached a scale. It's a G20 country. It was also very good at gaming. Some of the big exits that have happened were in gaming. Those two areas are not necessarily areas that where we excelled and Rovio notwithstanding. I mean, we don't have a big thesis. We don't have a deep expertise. So, I mean, obviously our eyes are open and I'm always talking to founders, but I think we have taken a different approach and we said, listen, we're investing in more infrastructure, dev tools, security companies financial services companies, and then every company we invest has to be a global leader. Mm. And so when that happens in a geography, whether it's the country I was born in or not, obviously I would be very happy if we see more SaaS and more infrastructure in Turkey. But what we are actively investing in and what great companies were getting built in there did not overlap for a while. And I'm sure that might change in the future. So we have our eyes open. But again, I just wanted to clarify While we might have a broad strategy, it does have very fine undercurrents in it. And so we're trying to stick to our knitting. Yeah, you can only do so much. (laughs) You can only Um, do so much. 
Aiden, thank you so much. Really nice to get to talk to you again. Always fun to catch up. And congratulations again on your new funds. And Thank you, Connie. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks again. That's it. Thanks very much for listening. Special thanks to Hunt Club. Check them out at huntclub.com. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.